uh, enjoyed watching my kids, whatever, whether it was sports or play or concert or whatever. One of my fondest memories uh, is when Bryson was five years old and he was playing t-ball and he made an unassisted triple play. Uh, he was playing second base and the kid came up and hit the, hit the ball off the tee and it was a line drive straight to him and he caught the ball, so that was out number one. And for the majority of kids when they're five years old and they're playing t-ball, about the only thing they know is when the ball's hit, you run. Uh, the bases were loaded and so when the, ball, when the kid hit the ball, Bryson caught it, the kid at first base was running because the ball was hit, he's supposed to run. Bryson tags him as he's coming by. Uh, so that's out number two. The kid that was on second base took off. None of them were heading back to their bases. So he runs over and he touches second base. Out number three, he's hopping up and down because he just made an unassisted triple play and nobody else knows what in the world's going on. Uh, and, and again, I, what was fascinating to me was the fact of his awareness at five years old of what was happening on the field. And of course then you hear the comments about, hey, that kid's going to grow up and be this ball player. He's going to be a baseball star. And, and of course, as a, as a dad, I kind of bought into some of it. I started thinking, you know what? Yeah, that might be my retirement plan right there, you know? You know, hey, he might, he might end up playing baseball. And I kind of started believing it until I read an article by Nolan Ryan. Just happened to run across this article, wasn't really looking for anything. And in that article, he stated that you really can't tell whether or not a kid's got potential to be in the major leagues until they hit about 15 and 16 years old. Because by then, all the kids pretty much, some kids develop faster than other kids, and their interests change. And so by the time they get to be 15 or 16, you might have a good idea if they might have something to be able to play uh, ball beyond high school. Now, uh, it's integral to the human condition that we make judgments of worth and importance based upon what our eyes see. I allowed what my eyes to see and my ears to hear to to move me and persuade me in a direction that really had no foundation in truth. But it's what I wanted to hear, it's what I wanted to see, and I, and I, and I, I made my judgment and my evaluation based on what seemed to appear to be so. Well, just like today, the people alive at the time of this event that took place in the first century had, come to, had, had, had bought into the notion that one's relationship to God, where one was at in their relationship to God, could be determined by the amount of stuff that one had accumulated. Uh, verse 14, of, 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 again, all in this context, this, all this stuff has been going on since chapter 15 of, of, of Luke. Uh, verse 14 informs us that the Pharisees' view of money was simply this. The Pharisees who were lovers of money. They, they loved money. And, and one of the reasons why they loved money is, first of all, it made, money makes life a whole lot more comfortable. Having money versus not having money makes life much more comfortable. And then also, it was a way, it was a visible manifestation to show or to prove to everyone their quote-unquote supposed favor with God. And that, that line is still out there today. That, that philosophy, that, that, error, that erred thinking is still out there today. That how much you have demonstrates your favor with God. Uh, I, I oftentimes will hear people praying, God, you know, bestow favor upon them. And many times within the context of that, what that means is material blessings. And while certainly uh, we, we desire material blessings and desire that for people, we'd rather see people go through, uh, not have to go through difficult times, yet sometimes God's favor is bestowed upon us through those difficult times. Uh, but, but that's what's going on in this context. And, and, and we see here, and what Jesus is going to let us know is that outward manifestations are not always indicative of an inward reality. The Pharisees on the outside looked like they experienced and, and were experiencing the favor of God. But in reality, they weren't anywhere close to Him. They weren't anywhere close to Him. Now, before we dive into the text there in, in verses 19 through 31, we need to address the issue as to whether or not this is actually a parable. There are some people who will basically... This is one of those passages where they will plant a flag and basically say, you are, you, you, are, you are a Bible denier 
if you hold to the fact that this is a parable. Uh, I, at one time, I believed, I believed that this wasn't a parable, but I, I believe it is a parable. And, and, but yet those who believe that this is not a parable cite two major reasons, and they're good reasons. Uh, one, one's more, one's stronger. This first one is a stronger re- reason than the second one. But the first reason is simply this, is the lack of anonymity. Lazarus is named. This is the only parable of all of Jesus' parables. This is the only parable where you find a character named. The only parable. The only parable where you find a character named. All the other parables of Jesus have anonymity. You read something like this, a certain man went out to sow. A woman hid, le- uh, hid, uh, hid leaven in three measures of meal. A man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. There was a rich man, again as it begins earlier in this chapter, there was a rich man who had a manager. So you have, uh, this, this is the only place in all of Scripture, in all of the parables that we have recorded of Jesus, where a character is actually named. And therefore, those who believe that this is not a parable, use that as a reason to say, this is about a real guy named Lazarus. However, while, the, while, while, while that is certainly true in the sense that Lazarus is named, that doesn't necessarily mean that Lazarus was a real individual. By the naming of Lazarus, but the naming of Lazarus is important to this parable. Without the naming of Lazarus, the lesson would simply be this. All rich people go to hell and all poor people go to heaven. That would be the the sense of uh, of the parable if Lazarus wasn't named. His naming is also important because Lazarus doesn't do or say one thing in this parable. He doesn't. He doesn't do one thing. He doesn't do one thing. Nothing. The only thing that we find him doing is he's un- he can't get past the gate of this rich man. He's paralyzed or he's, in, he, he's not able to move. Uh, he's got some, some, something's wrong to where he's not able, able to walk on his own, in his own power. And he dies. He dies. Uh, there's not anything that he does here. He doesn't say a word. Now, the rich man chats it up, but he doesn't say a word. And yet, he's given a name. He's given a name, which indicates the the importance of understanding what it is about Lazarus that, that made him important. The second reason is given is this, that if this is a parable, it denies the reality of hell. Now, this argument is not as strong as the first argument, because parables are not fables, parables are not legends, parables are not allegories. Parables are representative stories based upon real life situations. It's kind of like when you watch a movie and the movie starts this way, inspired by a true story. What does that mean? Does that mean that everything in that movie is is factual? No. Everything in that movie is not factual. But everything in that movie does have th- that what's being presented, that there is, there, 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 there's, there's, there's some reasoning behind it. It may not be, really, factual is probably a bad word, that everything in that movie is not exactly in detail. That every detail didn't happen in that movie. There's some, there's some creative license in that. Uh, that this is maybe, they, they surmise that, that this may have happened and this may be the reason why it happened and so on and so forth. Now, to some extent, that's kind of what a parable is. A parable is, is, is not taking an actual, an actual event or an actual story, but it can be kind of inspired by a story to where it might be something that, that happened here and something that happened here is added to it and something there is added to it. And so that's kind of what a parable is. Uh, one of the things, one, one of the proofs that we have is, for example, in the par- parable of the Good Samaritan. We're told about a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho on a certain road. And no one yet, no one denies the existence of Jerusalem. No one denies the existence of Jericho. No one even denies the existence of the road. 
when Jesus talks about this man that's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho on this certain road, it was a road that everybody was familiar with. They, they knew this road. They knew this road. But the story of the Good Samaritan, was it an actual event that happened? Probably not. But it could have been based upon some stories that, that might have happened, some, some real things that may have happened in the past. And Jesus took this and he kind of ties it together and he tells this parable. It was, it was the, the, the parables that he told, while they may not have been based on an actual incident, yet they were, they were real, real enough to life situations that they, they, they very well could have happened. They very well could have happened. And that's exactly what's going on here. Just because the, to, to call this a parable does not deny the reality of hell. So, again, whether or not you believe this is a parable, you know, it's, uh, it, it doesn't change the facts of the story. Uh, but, but I do think it's a parable. And, and today's parable is basically structured in three, there, there, there's three parallel twos. Two things happen. In verses 19 through 21, you have two lives. In verses 22 through 23, you have two destinies. In verses 24 through 31, you have two requests. You have three pairs of two uh, in in this parable. And so we're going to tell the story by unpacking the three pairs of twos, and then we're going to apply the truth. The first thing is the two lives. And, And never has there been such a contrast of opposite lifestyles. And these lifestyles, basically there's three things that are told about these lifestyles. We're told about the capital. And by that I mean what they possessed, how much they had. And we're also told, told about, if you can go back to the, the, the one slide there previous, you have not only the capital, but you also have the covering. You have the covering in the sense that what they're covered with. What is it that they're covered with? And then finally, you have what makes them conspicuous. What is it that would draw your attention? What is, what is it that you would see? What is it that would grab your eye and cause you to look at them? And so the first person that Jesus talks about is the person, the first person that you would think Jesus would be talking about. If you're talking about a rich man and you're talking about a beggar and you're talking to us about their lives, it just makes logical sense that the first one that you're going to talk to us about is the rich man. We really don't want to know about the poor guy. Let's find out about the rich man. Let's find about the rich man. So the first person to be discussed is him. Look at verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. We're told about his capital. The word there is is the word plausisos. And it simply means abounding. This guy abounded in material wealth. It's the same word that is described about the riches that you and I have in Christ. How many... What are our riches in Christ? A lot, isn't it? We abound in riches in Christ. What what we have in Christ is beyond uh, beyond our comprehension of what we have in Christ. We We abound in our riches in Christ. That's the word that's used here. That's the word that's used here. So this guy just doesn't barely make uh, a millionaire. This guy is... Really, 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 really wealthy. He would be on Forbes' list of, 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 of the top three in the world. This guy is loaded. This guy is loaded. He, is, he abounds in wealth. He is this rich man who abounds in wealth. We're also told about how he's covered. And it's demonstrated. He says, he, he, who was clothed in purple and fine linen. The way this, this thing is structured, basically it's telling us his everyday clothes. This is what this guy wears every day. This is not his Sunday go to meeting clothes. This is not what he has to put on when he goes to a funeral or to a wedding. This is not what he wears when he goes to a graduation. Or when he goes to some place to experience uh, a, a nice evening out. This is what this guy wears every day. This, this is his t-shirt and jeans. That he wears every day. We're told there in the text that he's clothed in purple. The way that this, the way that this purple dye came about was this dye, is, is the word that is used, is, it talks about the dye that came from snails. This dye would come from snails. And basically this purple dye, it was very rare. 
and it was very expensive. It was very rare, and it was very expensive. It also tells us that he was not only clothed in purple, but in fine linen. This is a reference to his undergarments. This is his, this is his boxers or his briefs and his t-shirt, okay? We're talking about his underwear. We're talking about his underwear. And the word that's used here, it, 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 was, a use, it was a word that spoke to the kind of, 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 of linen that would be imported from Egypt. In other words, his underwear, his underwear was more expensive than most people's wardrobe. I was curious, so I looked up. Men's expensive underwear, $165 for one, one, one boxers. $165 for one set of boxers. One. One. I mean, you either got to wash it every day or stink for seven, you know, you know. One. One. A hundred and sixty-five dollars. Now, here's the fascinating thing. They wouldn't make it if somebody didn't buy it. You know, you're not going to make a pair. I mean, now, now, and no, I don't think there's anybody here that would spend $165 for a pair of shorts, you know. But, but, if you do, okay, well, you know, more power to you. Uh, but, but they wouldn't make it if they couldn't make it and make a profit off of it and have people that actually bought it. That's, that's, that's the picture. That, this guy's wearing a $165 pair of shorts. His skivvies cost $165. That's the kind of riches. That's his everyday clothing. His everyday clothing. We also see what's conspicuous about him. And, and, and the word there which says he feasted sumptuously. Part of the nuance of that word is, is the idea of drawing attention to. And this is talking about his, his, his meals every day. Who feasted sumptuously every day. It's not just talking about the fact that this guy had this huge spread every day. But his daily, his daily feasting was meant to show off his wealth. His daily feasting was meant to show off his wealth. There's a restaurant in Dallas that opened just maybe a couple years ago named, I believe it's uh, Georgia. Georgia at something something. You can Google it. You know how much they charge for an Australian steak? One steak, 42 ounce. $395. $395. One steak. That's not counting the taters and the stuff that goes along. One steak. I'm sure the taters are probably 20 bucks or 30 bucks. One steak. $395. One steak. That's the way this guy ate every day. That's the way this guy ate every day, and he did it so everybody could notice it. I mean, he didn't have great value hot dogs, okay? He didn't have bar, bar Q or bar B or whatever the bar is, you know, bar S, that's it, bar S. He didn't have any, he didn't have any of them bar S weenies, okay? He had them Australian $395 steaks every day, lunch and supper and Chop it up to put it in your, 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 your eggs in the morning. That's how this guy lived. We're also told about his, his house, and it says at his gate. That word that's translated gate was also the word that would be used to describe the gate to an entrance into a city. A, a gate into the entrance of a city or a mansion or a castle. And that's where Lazarus is sitting at, at this gate. This guy is wealthy beyond means. And it's demonstrated visually by what he wears and what he eats. And if you and I were looking at it, we would say how blessed by God he is. Verse 20 through 21 describes the life of Lazarus in stark contrast. Look at, look at 20 and 21. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, 
covered with sores. He desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. He talks about here, uh, he says that Lazarus was a poor man. The idea of the word poor there is the word patoikos. Patoikos. It kind of gives you, it, it, it's also meant not only to, to read, but the patoikos. That's how poor he was. He's destitute. He has nothing. Not only is he poor and destitute, but, but he's immobile. Because it says here, it says, it says, if you look at the text, and at his gate was laid a poor man. Lazarus couldn't get there on his own. Somebody had to pick him up. And somebody had to take him there. So he's just sit, he can't move. When he's put down in that place... He's there until somebody comes and moves him. So here is this, this man who is, who is poor, who is immobile, and then his covering. While the rich man is covered with costly clothing. Look at what the text says. It says he's covered with swords. Now, before the next slide goes up, let me tell you, it's a little hard to look at. It's a little hard to look at. Because these sores are likely skin ulcers. This is kind of what a skin ulcer, this is a skin ulcer on an arm. His whole body's covered with that. That's what his whole body is covered with. That's hard, that's hard to look at. It, looks, it just looks painful. And they, it is painful. That's what his whole body is covered with. These skin ulcers, these sores. And what would draw your attention to him is not just the fact uh, of, of, the, uh, of, of, of these, these sores all over him. But when you look at the text, he talks about the, that he desires to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. He's not sitting under the rich man's table. He, he, he's just desiring, just, just, they'll just bring the table scraps out to the gate. We would say just to put the trash out, close enough to where he can get to it. He's willing to eat that. He's willing to eat that. But what would cause you to look at him would not only be the fact of these sores, but it says, moreover, even the dogs. And these are not little cute little puppies, okay? These are wild dogs. But even the wild dogs came and licked his sores. Now, he can't move. He can't make them go away. And here is this man covered with these sores. And these dogs are just gathered, these wild dogs are just gathered around him. He has the attention of these wild dogs as they are licking those sores. Lazarus desires food. Just, just, just the table scraps. And gets only the embarrassing attention of unclean animals. These dogs would be considered unclean. Unclean animals. By all observable criteria of that day, the rich man is blessed and Lazarus is not. That would be the theological conclusion as you looked at these two men. But not only do we see Jesus moves in from their two lives to their two destinies. And, and as he gets to verses 22 and 23 and 220, uh, with these two destinies, there is a reversal of roles. Whereas in this life, Jesus begins with the rich man. In the afterlife, Jesus begins with Lazarus. There's this reversal of roles. Look at what he says in verse, 20, uh, verse 22. He says, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Two things. We find his journey. He dies, and we don't hear anything about his funeral. I mean, probably put in a common grave, wrapped up, probably making sure that nobody touched him with all those open sores that he had all over his body. But his journey is one which is very unique because he's carried by the angels. He has an angelic escort to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. 
a place, uh, a place of, of security, a place of rest, a place of blessing. So his journey is an angelic escort. He dies and he's escorted by the angels to the great patriarch of the Jewish faith, Abraham. And his joy he experienced there, Abraham's side or bosom represents a place of blessing, a place of acceptance. It's a place of intimate fellowship. So he has blessing, acceptance, and intimate fellowship. His joy is overwhelming. His joy is abounding. That's his destiny. But then we see the destiny then of the rich man. Jesus continues and he says, The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. His journey is different than Lazarus' journey. Whereas, whereas Lazarus is, is escorted by the angels to Abraham's side, we're told here this man is carried by men to his grave. He's carried by men to his grave. In, in the sense that, that I mean, the, in, in the fact of, of this, he's, the sense of the phrase carried by men to his grave is that sense of finality. All his pleasure, all his joy, all that, that made life with, worth living ended when he died. That's, he, he experienced the best he's ever going to get. That's it. He's dead. Everything now is downhill after this. And, and that's the opposite of Lazarus. Nobody's life could be much more pitiful than Lazarus' life was. But yet he's experiencing in his death, he's experiencing joy and intimate fellowship. In other words, this life for Abraham or this life for Lazarus was the worst it would ever be. Everything from here on is uphill. So again, you have this, this reversal of roles. Jesus does it by word order, uh, as, far, as far as the order of, of who goes first. In, in this life, it was La- the rich man and then Lazarus. In the afterlife, it was Lazarus and then the rich man. And then just the words that are being used concerning their journey and concerning their joy. But for the rich man, there is no joy. The rich man rather experiences judgment. Verse 23, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. He's tormented in Hades. Uh, He's tormented physically. He's tormented mentally. He sees Lazarus in Abraham's bosom far off. In other words, he's, he's conscious of his fate. He's aware of what's happened to him. And he also is aware of how far he is from the place of blessing. Think about the irony there. Think about here is Lazarus in in, in this life who is laid at that gate. The gate that would, just the, the gate itself would be ornate. The gate itself would be magnificent. And he sees beyond the gate the, the mansion of where that rich man lives. And, and, he, and he sees all the, 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 the sumptuous food that is going in there. And, 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 and sees, again, th- this man knows Lazarus. So undoubtedly he knew who Lazarus, who Lazarus was. And no doubt he probably passed Lazarus several times, maybe during the day, during the week. And, and yet you have Lazarus sitting at this gate and, and, and seeing in the far off distance... All this wealth and this pleasure and this comfort that he doesn't get to experience in this life. But now the role's reversed. Here's this rich man, and he sees Abraham far off. Far off. And he sees Lazarus in his bosom. And he sees just how far away he is from blessing comfort and peace. Two lives, two destinies, and the two requests. Verses 24 through 31. And both requests are made by the tormented rich man. There's, there's, no, there's no panel that shows Lazarus and then a panel that shows the rich man. Again, as we said earlier, Lazarus doesn't say or do anything in this story. The rich man chats it up. There's two requests, and both of these requests come and are made by the tormented rich man. The first request is found in verse 24, and it's the request for relief. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, 
and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Now again, I, we, could, we could spend a lot of time here. But again, you see this role reversal. Here is Lazarus at this gate, and he's just longing for somebody just to bring some scraps by. And hopefully he can get to it before the dogs do. Just some scraps. Just some scraps. Just a crumb of bread. Maybe a piece of meat that's fallen off or that's thrown away. Just some scraps. And now here's the rich man just wanting one drop. Just a drop. He didn't ask for a glass of water. He didn't ask for a gallon or a pitcher. Just a drop. Just, just a drop. But he still sees Lazarus as somebody beneath, beneath him. Send me Lazarus. In, in other words, the idea is this. If someone like Lazarus can be at Abraham's side, surely I can get a little relief from my suffering. If somebody like Lazarus is at Abraham's side, surely I can get at least a drop of water. His attitude had... Death has not changed his attitude. Death has not changed his arrogance. Death has not changed his pride. Death hadn't changed it. He still sees Lazarus as somebody beneath him and believes that that if Lazarus can be there, he certainly deserves at least one drop of water. At least one drop of water. But the request is denied. The request is denied for two reasons. First reason is the principle of reciprocity. Look at verse 25. But Abraham said, child, and he uses the word technon. Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Child, did you do anything to help Lazarus? You know who he is. You walked by him. Maybe every day. You saw his suffering. You saw his anguish. You saw how emaciated he was. You saw the dogs, the wild dogs gather around him. And did you do anything? Did you do anything to ease his suffering? Did you do anything to demonstrate your compassion? So why should you expect that which you were not willing to give? Why should you expect that which you were not willing to give? You saw what Lazarus went through. You remember what you had. You wanted a drop of water. He wanted just a morsel of bread. What did you do? So why do you think you deserve compassion in return? Nothing's changed this guy's heart. Not only do you have the principle of reciprocity but you have the boundary of fixed residency. Look at verse 26. What the rich man observed was true, this being far off. He says, And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. He says here the fact that that a great chasm has been fixed. In other words, that somebody outside, he's talking, Abraham here is talking about God. Abraham is helpless to act, even if he wanted to. Abraham is helpless to act due to a sovereign established boundary. Abraham is saying somebody has established... The, 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 the verbiage there, 
It has been fixed. Somebody besides, somebody outside of me has fixed this boundary. They have, they have set up this boundary so that those on this side can't get to that side and those on that side can't get to that, this side. They can't do it. They can't do it. In other words, uh, God, God, uh, what's, what's, uh, the message that this rich man is hearing is this, is that in the afterlife, the righteous and the unrighteous do not mix. They don't mix. The righteous and the unrighteous in the afterlife do not mix. It's impossible for them to mix. In fact, there is no possibility of salvation after death. There's none. There's no purgatory. None. There's no second opportunity. When I die, my eternal destination is fixed forever. Because there's a great chasm. And one can't get, there's, there's no moving back and forth from either side. So Abraham tells him, there's, there's, there's no way. You're not going to get that drop of water. So he makes a second request. That second request also reveals his heart. And you have, he requests a resurrection. Look at verse 27 and 28. He says, Then I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Send Lazarus back. Let a resurrection occur. Send him back. Whether it's physical or whether it's a dream. Send him back. He requests this resurrection. And yet, this second request, like the first request, is denied also. And then you have this dialogue that takes place. You have the first refusal that Abraham gives in verse 29. Abraham says, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them, they've got the scriptures. They've got, all they have to do is look into the... Now again... Let, as, as, you're, as you're listening, go back to what's going on here and who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to these Pharisees. These Pharisees who love money. These Pharisees who have scoffed at the fact that, that uh, Jesus is teaching. Uh, that, 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 uh, verse four, uh, 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed Him. They've turned their nose up at Jesus and His teaching. They have been, they have been uh, criticizing Jesus back in uh, chapter 15. Now the text collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. They think they are the righteous ones of God. They believe they are right with God. And Jesus has been telling them who He is, and, 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 and He's been telling them, to the Scriptures speak of me. The prophets write of me. I'm the fulfillment of the law. I, I'm the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. I'm who everybody was pointed to. I am the Messiah of the Hebrew Scriptures. The Scriptures prophesy. Look at the Scriptures. Look at the Scriptures. Look at what it says about what Messiah will be and where Messiah will come from. I mean, it's all there. All they have to do is look at the Scriptures. And that's what Abraham tells this rich man. They've got Moses and the prophets. Everything that they need to know to avoid this place is found in the Scriptures. It's found in the Scriptures. But look at what he says. And again, it reveals his heart in verse 30. He says, no. No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. In other words, they need a sign. They need something greater than God's message through His servant. Give us a sign. And what are the people going to say to Jesus? Give us a sign. Show us a sign. And Jesus says, I'll give you the sign of Jonah. As, as Jonah's in the belly of the whale, uh, whale, of the whale fish, whatever, three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the belly of the heart of the earth. There's your sign. 
destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. There's your sign. And did they believe? Did the sign do any good? Nope. Not for them it didn't. Not for them it didn't. Again, it reveals the heart of this rich man. He believed that there was something greater than God's message through God's servant. They need something else. They need something more than the Scriptures. They need something more than an authoritative messenger. They need something more. In verse 31, Abraham says, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And he did, and they didn't. You see, the nature of unbelief is not a lack of empirical evidence. It's a matter of the heart. That's why we can share the gospel and share the truth of God's word, and people don't believe, and we think, what is wrong? And then we think, boy, if I, could just, if I could just convince them this way, or if I could just show them this way. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't know how to... to, to you know, Scripture tells us that we need to be able to give an answer for, for what we believe and what we hold to. But you can't, you can't argue anybody into the kingdom. Because the issue isn't here. The issue's here. It's a heart change. The nature of unbelief is not a lack of empirical evidence. It's a matter of the heart. Think, it's true in your life, it's true in my life. Greg, man, if you do this and if you do this, Greg, if you don't change here, Greg, this, ah, I'll be okay. I'll be just fine. I need a heart change. So what's the point? Well, to understand the point, remember, we've got to go back to that bridge. That bridge between these two parables of the dishonest manager and the rich man and Lazarus. We've got to go back to that bridge. So we've got to go back to the context, verses 14 through 18. And Jesus is letting the Pharisees know that they are like the rich man. That God is not pleased with a self-indulgent lifestyle that has little care and compassion for those in need. Verses 14 and 15. They, 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 they're lovers of money. They ridicule Jesus. Jesus says to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among, among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You think you're the righteous ones, but you're not. You're not. God is not pleased with a self-indulgent lifestyle that has little care and compassion for those in need. Verses 14 and 15. Second thing is once God has rendered judgment, it's permanent. It's permanent. Therefore, everyone is urged to enter into the kingdom. Verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached. And again, we talked about how that can be translated. The ESV has and everyone forces his way into it, which is a, a legitimate way to translate it. But I think it's best as the Net Bible has it and, because it's more true to the context. The idea is, is that, and that everyone is urged to enter into it. Everyone is urged to enter into it. The kingdom's come. The law and the prophets. Christ is here. The fulfillment of the law and the prophets is taking place. We're living in the last days. The days are short. Jesus is the one to whom we need to look to. Jesus is our hope of salvation. And it's time to trust Christ and become a kingdom citizen. Because when judgment happens, when death occurs... That's it. That's it. There, is no, there are no second opportunities after death. Verse 16. In verses 17 and 18, that God's word is authoritative. And Jesus is God's authoritative messenger. Abraham says to the rich man, they've got, they've got Moses and the prophets. And the rich man says, no, 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 no. That's not good enough. And in verses Verses 16 and 17 uh, of, of, what, of what, I'm sorry, verses, verses 17 and 18 where Jesus says it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And then he gives us this, this thing about divorce and we've talked about that and we don't have time to get, get all back into that. 
But Jesus is letting them know that He is God's authoritative messenger. Jesus doesn't appeal to, to, to Moses. He doesn't appeal to any of the, the, rap, the, the two leading schools of, of rabbis concerning their divorce. Jesus basically says, here's what I say, and what I say is authoritative because I'm the one that instituted marriage in the first place. Jesus is the authoritative messenger. He and His message are to be accepted if one is to be accepted by the Father. Man, I mean, Jesus is just, He's pulling back the curtain for them. This is, what, this is who you think you are. But look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. Because what you think and what the mirror reveals is two different things. When Bryson was playing t-ball, I allowed what I saw and what I heard to persuade me to believe that my son one day might be a major league star. Until I read the article and the one with authority spoke. My heart did not change until I submitted to the truth of what that authoritative person said. Unbelief is stubborn. It's stubborn. It's not a matter of evidence. God must change the heart. And only His power and His truth can make it happen. Unbelief is stubborn. It, do, it's, it, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter how much proof you have. It doesn't matter if you can lay a stack of arguments, valid arguments that high against them. It's, it's not going to matter. And I'm not saying you don't speak truth into their lives. I'm not saying that. God uses the truth to change hearts. But it's not a matter of them getting their thinking right. It's a matter of their heart changing. It's a matter of their heart changing. But, as we began this morning, we praise God that He has the power to change a heart by the Spirit through the truth that is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Do you know Christ? Do you have a relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ? When you take your last breath, where will you be? Because where you will be is where you will be. Where you will be is where you will be. It's not going to change. A million years from now, it won't change. A hundred million years from now, it won't change. You will be where you will be. What determines it is what you do with the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you've come to Him in repentance and faith, asking Him to save you from your sins, you have a relationship with God the Father through the Son. And where you will be is at His side, in His presence. If you don't, if that's not where your faith and trust is only in, minus nothing and adding nothing, that's not where you'll be. For those of us who are believers, we still have areas where we just don't believe where we refuse to submit. And it's stubborn. And it's not a matter of evidence. I, I've had people talk to me and I've talked to people. And I've made this statement and people have made this statement to me. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what I'm supposed to do. And what's usually the next line? I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what I'm supposed to do. It's not a matter of evidence. It's a matter of the heart. 
and surrendering and submitting. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you, Father, for your word and the truth that is there. And Lord, I pray you'd help us that this truth would not only equip us in our thinking, but we would, as we think about it, that it would affect affect our affections and thus change our wills to where we desire to be changed by you. And we desire our hearts to be made different. Father, we pray that you would continue to work upon our hearts. This, this isn't a lovey-dovey, ooey-gooey, romantic type of feeling heart thing. It concerns our desires, our wants. Father, that our desire would be to, to walk with you in a way that is pleasing, to, to show forth the mind of Christ as we talked about last week, that we would display the mind of Christ in how we live our lives. Father, we just commit ourselves to you. We pray, Father, that we would respond well to your spirit today. Thank you for your goodness and your graciousness to us. We pray these things in Christ's name through the Spirit. His heads are bowed and eyes are closed. We don't have an altar call, but we do have an invitation. If you don't know Christ, we've given you the truth today. We've talked to you from the Scriptures, but you've got to surrender to God. Give Him your heart. Turn your life over to Him. Allow Him to to save you and to change you. If you don't know Christ, you can call out to Him today. Asking God to forgive you of your sins. Through repentance of your sins and faith in Jesus Christ, you can have a relationship with the Father through the Son. And if you do that, we'd love to talk with you after the services, or if you're not sure about that, we'd still love to talk with you after the services and, and take as much time as needed, not just today, but in the weeks, months ahead, to help you to understand what it means to have a relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ. If you're a believer today, whatever the Lord is speaking to your heart about, we want to encourage you to, to follow through and to, to yield to Him and, and uh, to allow his work to take place in your life today. We're going to go to the Lord in a time of silence, and then after a time of silence, we'll continue our worship through our giving.